yeah, it kind of bridges a gap, really. It's mm -hmm. like, it's tough because you're going from like the really broad brush stuff of right. Right. broad principles of training. What's my why? What's a strategy? You know, how could I um, do this much training or how could I change my training to achieve my goal? But then you zoom in from all the really big stuff like that down into the tiny, minute, minute details of how to construct a training session, how to keep things interesting, keep yourself guessing, pick the right tire, the right skin suit, uh, race strategy. So um, it's one of those things that applies at all levels. Um, and that article ha had a go at going up to some of the some of the basics and then some more uh, out there ones. I seem to remember I wrote something along the lines of these ideas are peer reviewed. Uh, but some of them are also just peat reviewed mm -hmm. uh, and they've just been, they've been worked on in my own lab, if you like. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all new, all natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. That's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is currently racing as a pro triathlete. He's a behavioral scientist, active travel advocate, and probably most importantly, he says he could live entirely off granola if he had the option. Welcome to the show, Pete Dyson. Hello, hello. Great to have you. Great to be here, and hello, Jesse. Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for making the, the time for me. I know it's end of the evening for you. I, typically, I would probably be, if I was it, where you are time-wise, I would probably at this point be saying, all right, like it's time to calm down and get ready for bed. Like I don't have time for a podcast. So I, I appreciate you <laughs> making the time, um, you know, with everything you've got going on. You're welcome. You're welcome. So um, before we got going, you had mentioned uh, my assistant, Ira, who found you and got in touch, found you through a talk you'd done at a, in an airline conference somehow you're going to help me figure out how we wrap all these what you do maybe yeah, try up on airlines how we wrap that all together yeah it was unusual i must say um so i work as a behavioral scientist in a um in a consultancy or an, an advertising agency really um and i found myself in dublin airport a customer experience annual customer experience conference for uh, international airlines uh, my boss was talking about customer experience, which is something we work on together. Um, but they would got wind of me being a pro Ironman athlete um, and said, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a talk about that. Something motivational at the end of the long day of conferences. I thought, OK, um, what can I bring to bear here? And I brought along... Um, a whole series of thoughts that I've been having for years, to be honest, about applying psychology, all those disciplines and experiments about how people think and feel and behave. And I've, I've been applying it to my, uh, my sport, Ironman triathlon. Um, but I thought there were some really interesting sort of cross-cutting um, issues that you can talk about. Uh, they're actually quite relevant to airlines. So we talked about 
the importance of habits and consistency and social norms and goal setting, all things that were, I think, kind of refreshing maybe for a business audience, um, but things that I'm kind of obsessed about. So I was lucky and I was extra lucky that, um, um, uh, that you found me as well. Well, like I said, I'm always happy to talk to people like you. And we do have listeners, so if you're listening, I know that you're there. Um, but I just enjoy it myself. So if, if nothing else, then you'll certainly make a positive benefit on my day. Um, but did, did your talk kind of center around, I, I, I saw this um, article you'd done titled Try Thinking Faster and talking about like eight different ways to kind of model thinking or to, to get more out of yourself. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about just right off the bat? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was something that was a long while coming. And um, yeah, it kind of bridges a gap, really. It's mm -hmm. like, it's tough because you're going from like the really broad brush stuff, of right, right. broad principles of training, what's my why, what's a strategy, you know, how could I um, do this much training or how could I change my training to achieve my goal. But then you zoom in from all the really big stuff like that down into the tiny minute, minute details of how to construct a training session how to keep things interesting keep yourself guessing pick the right tire the right skin suit uh, race strategy so um it's one of those things that applies at all levels um and that article ha had a go at going up to some of the some of the basics and then some more uh, out there ones i seem to remember i wrote something along the lines of these ideas are peer-reviewed uh, but some of them are also just Pete reviewed mm -hmm. uh, and they've just been, they've been worked on in my own lab, if you like. Right. Well, the, you know, you've got, uh, is it eight? Yeah. Eight tips here. Um, one of the ones that really sticks out to me is talking about number three is like avoiding burnout. Is it, you know, you, you mentioned some things just simply take time. You mentioned the physics of it, but we can't like rush growth basically like there's just a, simply a certain period of time it takes to grow you can't push it any faster though we tend to focus on these like really hard sessions and that's what makes us feel gratified i think but also has the tendency to lead us towards burnout so that our consistency takes a nosedive yeah definitely i mean our minds can be our own worst enemies right um if we were to set up someone else some goals and set them some targets, it's unlikely many of us would be as harsh on other people as we are often on ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, when you talk about growth, I mean, I'm reminded that um, like many people this year have been uh, hoarding house plants under lockdown um, and getting a hang of growing plants where previously I had a tough time, but they're an organism just like us. Uh, you've got to be patient. Uh, you got to water them, but you can never expect them to suddenly uh, flower in uh, just a couple of days. It takes so much more patience. And, um, you know, this the stuff that goes through with training has to take some number of weeks to make an effect. We can't suddenly um, develop stronger muscles or bones or blood or heart. Um, definitely when it comes to injuries, it's sort of just tissue that's growing and you've got to be patient. Um so that's the burnout bit, really. It's, um, it's it, unlike a plant, we have the ability to uh, tie ourselves in knots. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as we reach, reach for the sun, it, sometimes we, it, it gets that way. And I've been there. And um, uh, every, everyone, everyone needs to find their limits a little bit. Yeah. 
yeah, I can't recall who. I feel like several guests um, over the last eighty some odd episodes now have have said something to the effect of, especially when we're talking about triathletes in particular. Often triathletes are this very like A type personality. They don't need motivation to like go harder. Uh, they do need help holding back. Actually, I'm thinking about particular in particular uh, former British triathlete Vanessa Raw. If you're familiar with her, um, I remember her mentioning that about her own career, like because she had so many injuries, and coaches wanted to just push, 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 and it was like she didn't need to be pushed. She had plenty of motivation. What she needed was somebody to say, like, it's okay that we hold back here and avoid those injuries. And I think that's almost, almost universal. Have you, have you gone through that? Or did you, do you come to the, uh, the place where you're like, no, it's time to stop like much easier than the rest of us. Yeah. You always want to, you always want to double down. Uh, right. When things are going good, you want to, you want more of the good. Uh, and it's hard to take that that week off or that time back. Um, I mean, I've been fortunate. I've done a tra- I've kind of been in triathlon for seven years or so, which is enough to get perspective, but definitely nowhere near like a lifetime. And compared with other guests, you might have had of decades of experience and and coaching experience, which gives you an, is a whole other galaxy. But I have had the good fortune to train and race with my brother, and we're similar physically and similar mentally broadly. Um, and you get that sense of perspective that he's so hard on himself and you can be a, you can kind of be the voice that you wish you had. And he'll say mm-hmm. things to me where I'd be like, yeah, I wish I would say that. <laughs> I should say that to myself or remind me of things I otherwise said. So having people close that are like that can really help mirror those, uh, those decisions. But um, for sure, uh, triathlon selects for people who are, you wouldn't do it if you weren't really motivated. It's a crazy kind of thing to do. It's a tough, tough old sport to track. Mostly the sport is training. Mm-hmm. And then you get the celebration of training, which is the race itself to really right. bring it together. Um, but yeah, it attracts a certain mindset. Um, and usually the ingredients are already there for motivation. Um, what you need to do is enhance a few other aspects and have working in behavior change and behavioral science and working my job Monday to Friday is to look at issues exactly like that mm-hmm. um, for companies and clients and governments and charities. Um, so it's natural. I think that way. Yeah. Well, it, and this is something that always, it, it always strikes me as not odd, but uh, maybe awe-inspiring maybe is a little bit to pray praising what it is but at the same time i don't want to be like all hail pete because i don't i feel like you be like that's a little odd don't don't talk to me like that uh but i i just have a hard time wrapping my head around people that are able to work a regular job and then also do a full ironman especially at the pro level because as you mentioned it's it's largely training right if you don't put in the training hours like you're going to be flat on race day. It's it, and you're basically are, ra- are wasting your time on race day, having not put in that prep time. So, um, you mentioned before we got going, you still got probably a couple more hours before you actually go to bed. What does your typical day look like? How do you fit in all the training sessions you need to stay in top shape? Yeah, I know it's, it's a great question. I listen to so many podcasts, and I love it when athletes talk about their their day and their week. And mm-hmm. maybe we'll get into like why I'm 
I'm obsessed with the the little things like that, or the real life banal things. Right. Um, yeah, broadly training the evenings mostly, but um, there's some back to back things. Uh, finish up work, um, six o'clock or so, and I'll often either jog back easy to a swimming session, squad swimming session, or um, there's not really a cycle commute. I live in London. So you're not really doing a lot of cycle training on those kind of roads, but it's right. sort of the warm up to then hop onto the turbo. Um, and yeah, tends to be in the, there's no session on a weekday that's more than two hours, two and a half hours, really when you're, they're always back to back. So it's jog to the swimming pool or um, cycle to go on a bike, to go on the bike and then do a run. So everything's sort of combined together. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been able to total like 15 to 20 hours a week mm-hmm. training. Um, you've got to be minded, mindful of how much you can do on a Saturday and Sunday. That's sensible that you don't become a weekend warrior. Uh, right. You be fresh for the weekdays too. Um, but yeah, lots of combined sessions, I think is probably the short answer. I might be doing upwards of yeah, 15 or 20 sessions, things tied together. So, uh, people seem to follow me on Strava, but I do pity them because they must get a lot of updates. <laughs> Another set, lots of little things add up. Yeah. Yeah, people getting confused. Like, I thought Pete was on a run. Why is he in the pool? I don't. <laughs> why are we doing laps? Um, <laughs> it's. Do you made me lose my train of thought? This is why I was supposed to be taking notes. Um, well, I can add. Uh, I can add like. Um, I don't know if 15 or 20 hours seems a lot. I mean, sometimes that's like as much as I can fit in. Really. Right. I just can't get to the 20 or 25, but actually it would be a different model. And that's why um, I think it's worth adding that it's not just about the, even though I do, I think it's worth citing the, the total volume. Um, it's about intensity as well and stacking those sessions in the right order. So you've gone hard on the Tuesday evening and you're not expecting yourself to run great on the Wednesday or, put in an incredible bike session so it's about the arrangement of those things um which is stuff like tss is okay but it doesn't know what you did last doesn't know what you did yesterday doesn't even Mm -hmm. know what you did an hour ago so it's not the best so you have to kind of take ownership of um working out how it goes so i'd say honestly i don't really thought even though i agree with the science sort of the 80 20 rule of 80 percent easy 20 percent hard that's a, if you've got a lot of time, I think that's a great model. Um, and by all means, if you've got 30 hours, but if you're down at kind of 10, 15 and you're trying to compete at the level I'm at, then you're going to, the bits that are going are the, are the, um, lower zone stuff, but I'm just doing what I can. I've looked at it and I think, I think it works, but I'm never going to say I'm super confident, but it just goes to show you got to work out what you got with the time available. Right. Well, it, I mean, it plays into a lot of things. It's the thing that works for you because it, necess- it wouldn't necessarily work for me. And then quality over quantity that, I mean, that's always what you focus on when you're time strapped and you're talking about full Ironman. I mean, you're working out. I was working out a similar number of hours for like halves, but I probably was doing, I would guess, obviously we haven't sat and compared schedules. I was probably doing more like zone two work than you're doing for a comparable amount of time. I don't think I could keep probably keep up with what you do. Um, for clarity's sake, 
uh, you'd mentioned TSS training stress score for anybody mm. who doesn't mm. have gadgety stuff and, and pay, just pay attention to that. There's a score that's trying mm. to tell you how hard you worked out pretty much. Um, I, I yeah. do wonder with it being at the end of the day, um, have, after a day of work or then starting the next day of work, uh, do you ever notice yourself in like a fog with your brain? Um, if you get, if you work out too hard or you get off on your eating schedule or any of that kind of stuff, do you, do you ever end up in that place? Yeah. Yeah. I think you do. I think you do. You can, you don't feel so good in the mornings. Um, and, and you got to be really careful that you've eaten enough in the afternoon to fuel the session that's coming. Cause you don't have a great window before you're talking about finishing a session at night for me, nine, nine thirty, and you gotta you're gonna try and go to sleep two hours later mm. so yeah i don't know exactly how much you loot how much you loot how much i'm losing out there um the on the the other way would be to get up early and people other people a lot of people i think do it that way um when i've tried that i just lose a lot of <laughs> the trade-off is big at work probably too big <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, i don't like it in myself like i want i want i want more balance than that um, but it does go to show sometimes some some novel training methods that come in and your uh, people talk about fasted runs in the morning or you have a glycogen depleted session. I go often just think, oh, that's just a Thursday morning when I run in again. <laughs> I didn't realize what I was doing. That's why when I get in on Thursday morning, I'm ravenously hungry for, uh, as you know, granola. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes you don't realize the stresses you're putting yourself under might be beneficial. Like I'm open to the fact that the scarce amount of training pressure, it puts yourself under. I mean, no one thinks that having less sleep is a good stress, Um, Mm. but at least the forcing yourself to, yeah, you're up and going, you're in work early again. There's some, there's some good things to come from that. It's not all, um, it's not all um, inhibiting. Right. I mean, we think about, like what is working out in when you break it down, it's you're stressing your body to a certain degree and it's going to adapt. So as long as you don't push yourself over the edge, then there are probably a lot of things that end up being beneficial. I think like with the, the fasted runs, I know some people are religious on them. I, I did it for a while. Um, I've kind of backed off of doing it recently. It, you know, I'm not sure how much benefit you get from them versus just balancing out your overall calories for the day in ter- you know, in terms of like talking about like uh, fat oxidation and fat adaptation for a fasted run or fasted workout. But there's, yeah, there's a lot of ideas out there and I do think it's probably good if for nothing else to have done it every once in a while, just for the mental mm-hmm. aspect. Cause I know at least when I was racing long course, there are times in the race you're hungry and it's like, it's not time to eat yet. You know, you can't take any more calories in, or you're going to be like, you're gonna have way too much on your stomach, but you got to still stay at that high level. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's a really hot topic at the moment. The past two years, it's really mm. kicked off of the interaction between nutrition and, um, and performance. <clears throat> I've tried to follow it closely in some of these, uh, uh, we both will be able to go into the depths of it, but um, it's another mod. It's another way of modulating it, and it's. I think the, the a good way of thinking of it is don't leave any stone unturned. Right. And 
a balanced diet of some sometimes sessions are low and sometimes they're high and just in the same way that sometimes they're super intensity and there's some sprints and sometimes it's a easy jog that you could um you could talk along to um yeah i think in the past i was a super to be truthful i was a super carb driven uh athlete i couldn't mm. ride my bike for more than not an hour or 90 minutes without bonking <laughs> there are places near my house where i grew up where i remember just grinding back up the hill uh, and it doesn't ma- seem to matter what I do now, and I, I can't put myself in that state. I may just be a more efficient person, or I may have been a- adapted to um, to uh, burn some of my own fuel a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Thinking about not leaving any stone unturned, uh, you know, I I don't I don't purport to be a expert on all of this. I like to talk to the experts, and I try to incorporate things in my own training and say. Hey, does this work? You know, and there are a lot of things that are personal, but one of the things that comes to mind that I hadn't really heard before, but I think I've kind of done a little intuitively was when I was talking to uh, Dr. Bob Murray uh, a couple weeks ago, he uh, wrote this book on exercise physiology um, that we discussed on podcast. And in the book, one of the things he mentions is that there is a positive benefit to training with heat adaptation and that if you train in a more hot environment even though it's more likely to fatigue you faster you will typically have a better performance outcome in any temperature environment because you spent the training session in a hot environment and it it just it got me thinking more um because it gets cold here as i'm sure it gets cold in london cold and rainy and I was like, well, you can't go out and be in the heat all year. It's not summer all the time. But I was thinking, hey, maybe, maybe if I dress slightly on the warm side for whatever you know, temperature it is, maybe that will end up being just that little bit, just a little extra of that benefit throughout training. I don't know. It's a personal experiment. We'll see. But that just reminded me of that, thinking about that. Yeah. And the research around heat is promising. I think it's almost a neglected one. It's quite easy to do. Mm-hmm. And let's compare it to altitude, which is very hard. You know, right. it's tough to give your body a chance to find low oxygen air. And it's a lot of faff and a lot of travel. <laughs> heat is something a lot of people can do. Yeah. And is a, is a good method. Um it's particularly good, I think, as well, that um, it brings your powers down and you're normally only, you're not really going to do heat training in the pool, but maybe some people are lucky enough to have a overheated children's pool, uh, public swimming pool. But normally it's got to be an indoor bike or an indoor run. Yeah. Uh, and that's quite accessible. It's something I've tried and, and, and did um, year before last in preparation for Ironman Texas, uh, which I knew was going to be a hot one. Um, and I did all sorts of running on a treadmill in winter clothes and uh, the hot bath protocol, which some people might be familiar with, get you 20 minutes in a warm bath. Who knows if it helped exactly? I mean, I completely overheated in the race, but maybe it would have been a, it would have been a damn sight worse otherwise. But yeah. To come to the potential benefit of what, I mean, there's, phys- there's another interesting one that there's physiological reasons why heat would help. It make blood blood cells, increase blood pressure, capillaries. There's lots of reasons why you think it might help. 
but there's some compelling stuff that I'm, I'm also open to the it helps your mind it's a tough makes a session tougher in in the session itself you have to work through it um it's more fatiguing mentally and in these long endurance sports it is your mind that's giving up everyone's showing it it's your mind that gives up before your legs do mm-hmm. um so it's a it's you wouldn't want to do all of them uh i don't think like that um but again it's part of the, it's part of the map part of the balance yeah yeah well, i think i guess I a couple of thoughts here it's you think about your mind giving up and you've probably experienced this uh, at some point in your career where you get to the finish line, whether it's a race or a workout and you stop and it's like, there's no possible way you're getting restarted. But if you had not stopped, you probably could have continued to compel yourself. But it's like, once your brain shuts off, like we're done, it, your your body's like i'm not responding anymore yeah well yeah i mean i've i've run and just about pulled out a a, a, a low quality sprint finish before and then it's been several weeks before i felt i could even walk properly again <laughs> so yeah. it was only that the finish line happened to arbitrarily be there um yeah and there's other times obviously it doesn't even go that doesn't even go that far and you realize um yeah, if you ever stop, there's no starting again. The everything see, would seize up. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was thinking as we were talking about uh, swim training and heat. I and this I'm sure applies to cycling and uh, running as well. But I actually have been in a hot pool to do training before because the pool I'm at finally in the last year or so they've gotten it under control. But it was variable for a long time. There was actually a point it was too cold. I had to bring my wetsuit to do a pool session because it was so cold and it gets so hot. But through all of that, I actually learned, and I don't remember the exact temperature. It's somewhere around 85 Fahrenheit, 30 Celsius, um, that your body is unable to shed heat into the pool any longer when the, when the pool is at that temperature. Um, so long sessions in a heated pool could potentially be dangerous. So if you're listening and you're thinking about doing it, make sure you're starting out with a short session um, if you want to attempt something like that or have a coach on hand because if you overheat your body and you're in the water like, and there's not an easy way to get out, it could be a, a dangerous and situation. I've, and I've, I've felt it. The sessions are definitely harder in pools that are just yeah. subtly a bit too hot. I would say they're also, they're also hard, but in I'm not so convinced in a good way when they're too cold. and Right. We've got a couple outdoor pools that, and um, uh, where I'm at, and some of them are heated, but then you're not always going to be heated as great all year round. It's a windy day, it's a cold day. They don't always nail it. Mm-hmm. But I don't personally. I I don't sign up for the sort of macho like let's grim through it, uh, <laughs> wear as little as we can. Um, I think triathletes have a tough time there. The the swimming community. Uh, Give us a tough ride. I'll wear a neoprene hat if I want to, or get on the <laughs> shorts to just as a bit of warmth uh, going on. I think if you you want the best session, you generally you want the best session, execute the best session you can. Mm-hmm. And being a bit of a shivering mess is not a uh, no. Nah, I don't think that's a good look. Yeah, well, it's a. I think it's a couple of things. There's that that culture in swimming that's like like that's just what we do. We get into cold pools early in the morning, twice a day. Like just that's just part of who they are 
Um, and I think, I think all three disciplines looking inward to triathletes kind of feel this way. Like we're dabblers, like uh, you just dabble a little in this sport. You're not really, you don't really do this thing. I think it's a little bit of that. Um, but then also, you know, just we talked about in the beginning, going back to your article, if I can find it here, I had it up. Um, that people remember that like that like peak experience, right? They remember, hey, it was it was frigid, like you know, I, I could barely keep my teeth from chattering in the middle of a session, even though I was going as hard as I could. It's like that weird type two fun going on. And I think <laughs> that's some of it too, where it's like, Yeah, yeah, yeah I braved the storm, like yeah, and you can definitely like you can definitely get some satisfaction out of overcoming tough sessions, and sometimes you 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 can chalk it up as a uh, as mental training. Um, we when you've been out on a session, the weather turns, it's gone a bit grim. Yeah, you can you can take. I definitely think you can take take good things from that. But what you're citing, yeah, and no, what I wrote about was the what's called the peak end rule, and the mm -hmm. peak end rule describes how our memories generally are formed by the peak of that experience and how it finishes. Uh, and there's been work done on uh, medical procedures and how people um, uh, particularly dislike the ones that end end in a tough way. So they adjust them a little bit and make sure it's got a sort of happier ending, if you like. Um, I've applied that to training sessions in a way to be mindful to not at every, all tougher sessions try and really empty the tank on it. I could do. And there's a physical reason why you might not want to. Your scores go too high and you know too much stress. But... I think mentally as well, you don't really want to end on a on a sour note. Um, and it might well be why it's nice to train with other people because when you get a shared experience of a sort of tough ending, you can you can you can talk it through. So if you do mm -hmm. train on your own, I think it can be worthwhile. And I don't know, may, maybe other people would say it's soft and you're you're holding back. But a lot of the training to get the volume and the consistency is a negotiation with yourself of what mm -hmm. you're willing to do. Uh, are you willing to nigh on every other day, put in a hard session where you, where you do push? And if you just if you burn your chips too early, then you know you don't get to week six at all. You don't get to week eight. Um, so I think that's I try and take that steady, and that's often what coach what the role of a coach will be um, uh, in the various times they do hold, they do say they spend various time holding athletes back. In a way, mm. we shouldn't even frame it as holding back versus pushing forward. Even that metaphor feels a bit off, doesn't it? Right, because it feels like, well, why would you hold me back? Like, if I can go, I, I, I should be allowed to go. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's avoiding that overtraining, like we, you know, talked about before. Most people don't need that motivation to go harder. They got plenty of motivation. I, I you know, it, I could be wrong here. I'm not a pro. I'm certainly not a world champion. But it seems like if you stay consistent, even if you are like, you know, taking the easy way out, you know, but stay consistent with your training and do some of those uncomfortable sessions every once in a while to keep yourself sharp. I feel like you're probably in the long run going to get more out of yourself than if you just torture yourself every single day. Yeah. Yeah. I do. And, um, Sometimes in work as well, we talk about where people construct fake trade-offs. They assume that there's some trade-off between, oh, if you're advocating consistency, then 
you're just one of these people that sort of is settling for a middle ground and you're never really reaching peak performance. Right. I, I think that's a false, that's a, a false dilemma. It's, it's a, it's a fake trade off. It's, there's not really a world out there where if you absolutely bury it, um, you'll achieve this brilliant performance. I think it's, again, we were talking, I introduced talking about plants earlier. It's, it's, there is an optimum amount of water a plant, a certain variety, the right amount of sunlight. Right. It's not like, oh, if I just added another liter and put it in the mid, in the burning hot sun, I'll have a way better plant. You just won't. You'll have a wiltiest plant, I'm afraid. So uh, I try and push. I, I think that I think I'm convinced that that's a more a more compelling model. Yeah. Well, it's. I I think that. How, so how do we get over that culture, right? Because is that that idea of we need to go harder all the time? That's how we're going to, you know, be the best that we can be. Uh, you know, I I know I can't speak to uh, British culture, but I know at least American sport culture. Like that's very much the idea. Just go as hard as you can. That's the only thing you need to focus on. But then you know, as our both of our experiences kind of pan out, I think it's less that and more consistency so how, how do we change that method message i mean you're the behavioral scientist how do we get you know how do we get people to to see okay this is suboptimal behavior you could get more out of it if you don't subscribe to that philosophy yeah yeah and um yeah i mean i've worked with uh i've worked with some sports brands and um i've been in the good fortune of sports brands that are um more on the uh, on the newer side of um a more balanced approach a more mindful approach and more sort of what are you in it for kind of questions um because unfortunately i think we have suffered through some decades of um of being peddled messages that sell equipment that's more about um be the olympian that buries themselves and makes sacrifices and doesn't see their family or trains through horrific conditions and is there's some sort of uh, just tying that up with a, with a sort of movie culture mm -hmm. that does work well for that company, but it has a bit of a side effect that if, if you absorb it and you internalize that, it's probably not the way, probably not so much the way to go. Um, there's a, bit, a certain element of it being a sport and a competition. So um, you're trying to beat other people, bringing a competitive spirit out. Um, right. There's a certain amount of performance that you need to, and I mean that in the sense of like more like a theatre performance, um, that you need to feel like you live a certain way. Yeah. You know, you mentioned movie culture. And I think about, I wonder if we've seen so many like sports montages in movies, if we're like trying to fill our own montage with like, this is this moment. And then, then, then I did this thing. And like, here's my whole like montage in my head and trying to like build that up. Because it's, you know, like I think about, I think about like Rocky, I guess, do that, that montage. It's just him working hard, drinking eggs, which nobody wants to drink eggs, doing all these things that are unpleasant or difficult, and then going to, you know, be the champion. Well, depending on which movie, spoiler alert, he doesn't always win. Um, but but it, it, it's this, it's this idea that if again we just if we just work hard. That's all you need to do to, to be the yeah, best. Yeah. Well, the fun thing is that you could, um, I'm not an anti-work hard person. That's the right. strange thing. I mean, you could do, 
you could make if there was a a GoPro in my in my garage. It's showing me there's there's plenty of uh, tough suffer sessions on the bike, and I, I would be almost collapsed down. And I get back from a run, and I'm laid out Rocky style. But I just don't think that that would be for me the montage that constitutes success. You you could also have a montage of me sat on my uh, kitchen table. De- demolishing a bowl of granola and <laughs> lying down <laughs> sleeping and i think probably that's the bit that's ad- spawning the adaptation uh that, that's leading it and it's you could feel you could feel me that on a rest day doing almost not seemingly nothing but that's the path to success too so it yeah. depends which clips you do want to take out uh, and obviously the rocky movie takes a certain snippet of uh of rocky's life to to, to pick it out yeah, yeah. So you've got, this is kind of a hard transition, but thinking about what you're doing for work, you know, how, how does that background play into figuring out your own training philosophy? Or I guess, I guess I should ask, are you coached or are you setting up your own stuff? Yeah, no, I do a, a self, self coach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like many of your listeners, probably I uh, yeah. li- listen to a lot of different sources, listen to other coaches uh bring it bring things together that way um try each year to to approach it a little bit differently doesn't mean that every year is right but sometimes you just got to change things up otherwise you're gonna gonna stay where you're at right i I think that's the the toughest part is figuring out what is the new thing that you do you know when i think about if i'm writing my own schedule which i used to and i'm fortunate enough to have a coach now um but if I'm thinking about running my own schedule, I know, like, I think about, you know, what, what are the peaks in my career? What were my favorite workouts from those times? And it's like, is that necessarily applicable to where I am right now to get me to the next level? Probably not, you know, because you need that like, constant change to force new adaptation. If you're doing the same thing, you're going to get the same results. So I feel like that's the toughest part for me in self-coaching is, is figuring out what do I actually need to be doing? And then on top of that, following through, I always had a tough time second guessing because, you know, you get into a session and you're like, you know, I, I just, I feel terrible today. Should I go short? Did I assign myself something that's too long? Did I overload, you know, get that, that ambitious bug and say, well, I'm going to, you know, just crank out the session. You're like, really probably shouldn't have gone that hard. And then second guessing yourself inside of the workout, instead of just focusing on this is what I need to get done. Yeah. Yeah. You got to get to the root of where the second guessing comes from though as well. Cause I've had coach, I've had coach sessions too. And you're also second guessing. Why is the coach making this? Why are we burying it here? Is it, is this right? It's only, it's, it's so many weeks out from the race or it's too close to the race or uh, are you, the session isn't, so you end the session and you go, Hey coach, is that, is that all it was? We could have gone harder there. And then that, so there's the second guessing is sometimes about uh, uh, being loss averse or uh, having some deeper anxiety. But I'm, you know, I'm psycho- working psychology, so I am liable to say this. Doesn't mean that's how your mum treated you when you were a baby, um, but it can it can lead to some deeper question of like, are you bought into the process, or do you trust you tr- trust how you made that decision to do it? Do you trust the uh, the coach that's setting you the plan? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think if I think about it now, very rarely um, do I question my coach. There, are every once in a while, I will, and it'll be it'll be something small where it's like, hey, you know, and we've got you know we've been working together for a number of years now, um, but you know, thinking about are you bought into the process? I think some of it's like I have an opinion about especially when it comes to running cycling it's it's all his world um i'm never going to question what he's telling me on the cycling stuff because he he coaches um he coaches world-class cyclists so i i don't know anything but when it comes to running it's like i have this background so i'm like you know i know that i need basically a certain amount of taper period to hit you know hit my peak and if we don't do that, if it's short, if it's long, like things are going to be off. So I, those are the things I'll question. Like when I'm like, I have this conviction that this is exactly how it needs to go and it's not, then I'm like, okay, we need to have a discussion about what's going on. Otherwise, I think I'm bought into the program, but I think you nailed it where it's just like, are you bought in or are you unsure of, what, of, of the, the situation? Mm, mm. And it's okay to be unsure. I mean, uh, it just means that you need some conversation or just need to take take stock of it. That's going to happen too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, for you, the listener, maybe this won't be interesting, but I'm curious. So I have to ask Pete before we're not on anymore. Um, you were mentioning working previously at um, Ogilvy as a behavioral scientist. And so for you that doesn't know, um, Ogilvy does advertising, marketing, those kinds of things. Um, so, so what were you working on there? Um, are you using your, uh, dark psychology powers to sell us things we don't need? (laughs) What, what was the kind of stuff that you did there? No, I had a really, I've had the really good fortune to work in a specialist behavioral science practice. And that means, um, a team of a dozen of us or so are are all psychologists and behavioral scientists and we work on brief uh, challenges for, for 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 companies and organizations that are less about selling things and more about behavior change and that behavior change tends to be things like using where people aren't using the product the way the company would have hoped they would so they mm. misunderstood it or they um um they're motivated to do something but they it's not been made easy enough to do so we do things on recycling and sustainability where a lot of people are quite rightly pulling the lever of getting people to understand that there are big issues now and coming but are they doing the things that make it easy so a campaign we ran a few years ago was called um one bin is rubbish sort it out get a recycling bin in the UK, we've got these, a lot of people have got a small kitchen and for decades we've had just one bin, one rubbish bin, we call it. Um, so the line that we're working with is actually, you don't need to convince people that recycling is going to change the world. You just need them to somehow, somewhere, go out and get themselves a separate second bin so it makes it really easy um, and they're not sort of hanging off door handles and put it in putting it in wine, uh, cartons of wine and all the rest of it. Um, and it's proved really successful and it's really helped up, um, 
helped um, increase recycling rates. So we do lots of things in, the, in of that nature. There's charitable, don charitable donations, um, safety and, and uh, road safety, factory safety. So I have the really good fortune to work on lots of different, it seemed like such different industries, uh, but the unifying principle is it's always about people and, and people's decision-making and behavior, that, that, that whole world. So this is kind of a, 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 I'll say a loaded question, but is your job basically to trick people into doing the things that are good for them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good, it's good to, you've loaded that, you've loaded that gun. I know. Um, but I've already got a response to it, which is to say, I, in all the time I've been, been working, I haven't seen much evidence that we've ever been very good at getting people to do stuff they didn't want to do. Right. Uh, bluntly. Um, we're much more about the people are inclined to do it. Um, they've said they wanted to do it sometimes. Um, we're making easy, we're greasing the wheels uh, and making it either physically easier to do, mentally more memorable and easier to do, more socially acceptable to do it. Um, so I don't think we've been very good at changing. We don't change people's minds all that well. Um, it's tough to get things to work even when you're in the and other people might be familiar with the nudge territory of it being a um, uh, there's an inclination to do it. Uh, you're not forcing anyone's choice either way. I think that's the it comes up kind of in entrepreneur circles. I think I've mentioned it on the show before. It's just when you think about uh, I talk about David Ogilvy in, in the sense of being a copywriter and learning about copywriting, which is all the words that you read when you're on like a product page and those kind of things trying to you know convince say convince but it's not really the right word either maybe i'm not a very good copywriter um to get people to buy things and it's like as you mentioned it's like if i'm on uh if i want to buy a, a vacuum i'm already in the market for vacuums right like i'm looking for a vacuum i just need to know i need to be nudged in the right direction to get the thing that actually solves the problem that i i want to solve Right. And so I think sometimes that's, that's why I say the loaded question, because I know that's not actually the case, but it does come up, you know, is it, are people like you playing these like mind tricks on us and making us <laughs> buy all of these things? And it's like, eh, probably not, probably not. Um, sometimes so, we're trying to fix, sometimes I'd say we're trying to fix um, symptoms of the human condition right um, so as i alluded to we were i worked in factory safety actually in the us um uh and worked around factories and you see this phenomena and the shift and the shift leaders would describe it as the times in the shift where they see red which is when they've set a target of production um and they're now running the machines and the operators are running under target and they use a board a scoreboard to say the number of clips per hour or per day. Uh, and they'll use a green pen if it's above and they use a red pen if it's um, below. To which when we come in there and we say, oh, so you, you're saying you don't want to see red, that's a safety concern. You see people, it, it um, instigates people rushing and it meets, makes people um, not follow the procedures that they said they wanted to and we definitely want them to follow. Uh, so we did something as simple as simply get rid of the red pen, and change, change it out. No more red pen, no more board. Um, uh, the safety leads in this factory said, actually, we're not really sure why we even do the scoreboard at all. The operators just need to follow the procedures. We don't need them to, I mean, 
maybe we think they're getting a motivational benefit when it's green maybe they're doing good but we don't want that if the um other side of that coin is that when they see red we have the safety concern um so actually this is one where i distinctly remember bringing something in from sport in this case the business um was that i remember i've set myself race targets and um definitely if you're a, a cyclist or a time trialist you'll have entered some kind of event where you have a wattage in mind a particular watts for that particular event um so i've in the past agonized over i'm above target below target so i'll set so let's say 300 and the going is great when it's 302 and somehow i'm desperately under target when it's 298 so instead i've made a window and what we worked with them on was actually to have not a set number of clips per hour but have a production window where it's a, a it's a it's a it's a good zone to be in and that way people don't agonize as being you're either in a state of above too confident or below anxiety and stress um and that's something i would say usually i'm trying to bring things in from experimental psychology and things that i've read and studied but in this case i think it's a quite a nice comparison it's uh it yeah it's, it's a novel way of approaching a challenge and oh and they um we changed these pens got rid of these pens and um we were doing studies of their well-being before and after and reported i think something on the lines of 25 percent decrease in uh, instances of the of people feeling rushed which was so good to see and uh really promising well and then you yeah, i mean you end up probably getting the same or better output right when people aren't stressed because you you feel like I think there's probably a tendency, and I am speaking out of turn a little bit here, but probably a tendency for bosses to be like, when we're behind, like we need to push, push, push. But especially in an in industry where safety is such a concern, pushing leads to cutting corners, which leads to accidents, and then people get hurt. Mm. So it's like if you if you just thinking about again sport and what we talked about earlier focus on the process stay consistent and like long term you'll everything will kind of balance out yeah yeah it's one of those ones of like be careful what you measure because what you measure is going to get managed um so if you measure volume then you're getting a volume game of how many miles or how many minutes am i doing uh and that's natural but you can know that it's a powerful force. So you might want to use it for good when you want to use it for good, like keep yourself in check and get consistent and, you know, pull yourself in that direction, but also don't let it lead you to, to bad things of uh, obsessing over, uh, over numbers that, you know, you'd be better off just running with the process. Yeah. So it, right now, I think, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you're working with the Department of Transport on on changes related to COVID and, and those mm. kind of things going mm. on right now? Yeah, yeah. So uh, coronavirus hit and I'm in a secondment, so a temp temporary position with the UK government in the transport department. Yeah. Um, looking at challenges uh, like we need in the UK, really need people to get out on bikes and be, get them walking. Um, a lot of people have wanted to for a long time it hasn't they felt it hasn't been safe enough and it hasn't um but there's other ways in which we can help them out so we've uh, got uh vouchers for bicycle repair uh we've got cycle to work schemes um 
and we're trying to work with employers to make it easier for when offices reopen so that they get better facilities and they make it more normal that um under you know the new world that it's okay to cycle and that you get good facilities when doing it so trying to bring together that's one where it's sort of like we know people quite a few people are going to be quite motivated um they've simply a lot of people have been saying they don't want to go back to the old world so how can we give them what they what they need physically and also mentally to to make it happen so again we're just trying to nudge people towards behaviors they already want to take on right yeah and it's one of those ones where if you have millions of pounds and some governments do, then you can build cycle lanes, but it's going to take quite a while. Yeah. And there's going to be a few trade-offs, but you can also, when all the bikes are selling out of the shops and the big retailers here, make sure that when someone does buy that new bike and they've got good intentions, you're also giving them a map of the local cycleways and you're helping them out about how they can repair it. And you're making sure that when they buy the bike, they go, well, you know, make, if you get a lock, then you'll be able to also use it for transport. Otherwise, we're selling bikes that are it's great, but are just recreational. And it's, they've realized, you know, how do I cycle to the swimming pool? Or how do I go and do my shopping if I don't have a lock? So there's lots of ones where you're trying to help people out who, you know, I bought a bike for the first time. I was clueless some 15, 20 years ago. I wish someone had helped me out <laughs> in the beginning. So we're trying to be that, play that role. Uh, it's not the whole answer, but alongside um, cycle lanes and a lot of other infrastructure. You need the whole picture. Yeah, well, it's, it, I mean, it seems like, and this goes back to training where I, I, I kind of envy your position because you can, training is like a microcosm of life, I always feel like, where it's like, it, it's hard to see how just in the microcosm, just the little niche of let's, encourage people to bike like how is that going to help transform our society or our culture how is it going to positively impact our citizens over time but if you have the ability to try to think forward it's like well maybe you know in the short term coronavirus is going on like that's a terrible thing people are getting sick people are dying but among that, that gives us the opportunity to try to, as you mentioned, nudge people towards taking bikes, you know, maybe being able to, in the long term, build up better bike infrastructure, which can lead to, you know, lower greenhouse gas emissions, fitter people, dealing with obesity. Like, it has, there's a lot of potential positive benefits that take a long time to take place. But if you start, like, start the ball rolling, in, in a you know very difficult situation right now for everyone, then you may be able to get more long-term positive benefit out of it. And I think I think that's tough for people sometimes who hopefully you don't get this question, but you know, if people kind of looked at like, well, why does it matter that we ride bikes? What like what the hell is Pete doing right now? Like why does his job matter? You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And um Oh, I think you've you've done a good job of describing the benefits of it. There's there's lots there's many wit there's many wins that it occurs on, um, not least that the uh, that the cycle being able to 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 have the freedom to choose. So mm -hmm. really, at the moment, it's a case that there's people out there that would want to use this piece of equipment, but um, they don't feel like they can, and there's there's a sort of justice part to it there. 
I'd be really interested to know how you're you, you're doing over on your side of the Atlantic with e-bikes. We're talking a lot about e-bikes, and it's a thing um, we've joked. <laughs> we've joked that it's like at the moment though, it's like uh, teenage sex. Um, everyone's <laughs> talking about it, but there's not a lot of people doing it. No, no doing it. Well, you know, I could actually. Um, I wish I'd been able to have him on the podcast. He's a city councilman now. Um, so I have a couple experiences. So my fiance, her brother loves the heck out of his e-bike. Um, although he had to sell it, he recently moved and well, he, yeah, he moved to an Island. He had to sell everything to get, to get there. Um, but there is a city councilman here. I live in uh, Kansas city, which is in the very center of the U S and the city councilman named Eric Bunch, who coincidentally went to the same college I did. Um, I tried to get him on the podcast. I'll have to try to get him back on. And maybe we can talk about this and I can follow yeah. up with you. But he set up, he's one of the people that helped set up this whole initiative to get bikes and e-bikes and scooters and all these things as part of the city public transport situation here in Kansas City. And I'm fortunate enough to live in a neighborhood one of the few neighborhoods that is pedestrian friendly, has a running trail near it, um, and has those bike stations and stuff set up. And I have seen more and more people on them. Uh, the scooters, of course, litter the sidewalk. Not terribly, but they're just, they're, I just, I find them somewhat silly, but I don't have to use them. So it's, it's a little uh, elitist of me to say that. Um, but they are definitely catching on. Mm, as okay. more people so we have you know we have like city dwelling suburbs and then the exurbs which are even farther out and in kansas city um that's definitely how our geography is built like we didn't go up we went out because there's tons and tons of land here in the midwest um was previously farming land so lots of space um so there wasn't a need to go up but people want to live in the center of town where all the things are, where you don't have to live out in the middle of nowhere and all you have is five chain restaurants and nothing, you know, but that also presents with its, its own problem. The, you know, where do you keep a car? Do I even want to pay for a car? All those kind of things. So some of these initiatives have, have had, I think, at least with our cohort, I think we're of a similar age um, and younger people, a really positive benefit because they've been able to live more, I'll say downtown, at least here, and then had mobility, you know, that they wouldn't have had just being a pedestrian. So I agree on the surface. You're like, that's really a really a little like silly sounding, or it doesn't seem like anybody's doing it, but I, I think it is catching on a little bit more. And I know the city's really had, pushes towards larger adoption. So uh, mm. I'll be curious how it pans out over the next decade. I think that'll give us a better idea about, is it a fad or is it actually catching on? Yeah, um, I wonder, But I can definitely I wonder, say I've seen people on them. I wonder how it will play out because uh, it could be a culture thing because um, the UK has similar sort of cycle rates to, mm -hmm. to some of the neighboring continental European countries, not, not the Netherlands, um, but say Germany. But they're outselling e-bikes 
like you wouldn't believe that e-bikes are like 10 times what we have in the uk mm-hmm. and i just wonder whether it's a sort of a thing of saying like it's okay to have an e-bike or whether it's people holding back like in sports cycles saying like that's sort of cheating i'm not sure yeah. exactly it clearly would be cheating in a race right <laughs> you might have to it has a speed limiter as well i'm hoping hopefully uh but uh yeah i wonder how it'll play out and i wonder how is in the years to come it'll come with a people doing a sort of epic ride but there's also been a battery involved it probably was also it will have been an epic ride you know five ten hours on a bike or something Mm -hmm. but it'll come with that sort of little caveat of saying oh you did have a motor for a bit of it Um, but I think it would be great I mean if I could if it could enhance your number of training partners get more uh, couples cycling especially where there's like speed differences or friends that can go out I mean, I'd love, I've got some great mates who aren't so quick on the bike, mm-hmm. uh, but I'd love to, I'd love to do a trading ride with them. Maybe in the future, it'll come together. Mm-hmm. As it's been, I found myself going in the other direction and I sort of uh, downgrade my bike. I've got a, a road bike with worse tires. It's not that well maintained <laughs> and the aero position's terrible. And that's sort of like a good leveler just so that I'm like, oh, well, I want to have good I want to have some training benefits from this ride too. Um, so you have your good, great bike and I, it's not a terror. It's not embarrassingly bad, but um, yeah, it'd be nice if uh, equipment could help us socially a bit more, bring, mm-hmm. bring together. That'd be cool. Well, it could be too. It's like, it, there's going to be a limitation here. I, I think of everything kind of like a sales funnel. It's like, if you get a hundred people on e-bikes, not all of them are going to go on to, to be racing crits and like, really get into cycling but some people i think they get comfortable on a bike or like get reintroduced to a bike because they haven't been on one since they were a kid might think uh you know maybe today i'm gonna turn off the pedal assist and i'm gonna take this hill on my own and that turns into like i'm spending more time actually just out riding the bike without it now i want just a normal bike that doesn't have the Mm. the electronic component i'm gonna go out and rides it's Again, we are talking about just making little nudges, just try to, you know, push our way slightly in, in, into areas where people can more easily do the things that they really would like to be doing. Mm-hmm. So, um, Pete, as we're starting to wind down on time, I'm asking everybody the same question this year at the end of every episode. So I'll ask you to, I'd like to know your thoughts and what you think the purpose of sport is. Whoa, okay. <laughs> to bring out your best self. Yeah, I think so. You go around, but you can only, we're all built differently. You can only do be in this world to try and, I you know it sounds um, schmaltzy and romantic, but it's to be as good as you can be, but also bring your, whatever your best character traits out in it. If you're an introvert then you go and do that thing you know if you're an extrovert and you want to do it to make friends and meet people then great do that just bring out your best characteristics i think yeah i like that one uh pete if one people want to see what you're up to follow your races any of that kind of stuff where can they find you yeah uh twitter i think pete underscore dyson uh be the place to follow um Got really looking forward to 2021. Have no idea which races will be on, which I'll be doing. Um, just biding my time for now. Um, yeah, ready to get out there. Well, hopefully it goes well and good luck this 
this coming season. Hopefully everything goes off without a hitch. Yeah, thanks. thanks All right. Thanks for hanging out with me today, Pete. Cheers.